0: You're listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. Well, good morning. Some of you look as tired as I feel Good to have you here. If you're a guest with us, welcome to VBS Sunday where we obviously sing some of the songs that our kids sang throughout the week and uh, where I am going to uh, preach and teach at least through some of the material that they learned. I'm going to give you uh, just a a little bit of a taste of, of some of the things that they covered in the individual stations that they went across throughout the night. Um... There's really a couple of goals here for why we do VBS Sunday. One is uh, we wanna help our parents here better connect with their kids with regard to spiritual matters. So uh, obviously parents, you didn't, unless you were a helper here this past week, you you didn't engage with what they were learning. This will kind of give you at least one aspect of of VBS to connect with your kids on, ask questions about. Uh, But secondly, to help our congregation better understand the kinds of things that that we want our future generations thinking about. passages that they're reading, uh, so on and so forth. And really, because I, I think more than anything, when we think about VBS, we think of like simple, which it is uh, at the child's level. But I think what you're going to find this morning is I'm just going to preach the text. And so uh, if you were to like tune in starting about right now and disregard all of the decorations, this is going to feel like otherwise, I think, just a normal Sunday. Now, I want to uh, I want to point out a couple of things. I, I was going to go through the, the five days. They did that really well at the welcome, and so I won't repackage that. But there were a couple of just thoughts that I had had um, corrections, if you will, that I would like to submit to uh, Vacation Bible School, and that is this, day two, uh, the character's name was uh, Ringo, and uh, Ringo was the planet with the rings, obviously, I mean, it makes sense why they did that. Um, but if you remember day one, they went through the light or the the, the different days. Day one, show day one for a minute. That was uh, Cosmo, and uh, Cosmo was a star. Now I'm just saying this, but if you flip the characters, you get Ringo Star. This is this is like rock. It's a low hanging fruit. You go for that every time. Um, the other thought that I had was that uh, the comment on day five, uh, Haley gave me a little bit of pause for a moment when I uh, saw it in the material. I had to do a quick Google search because Haley is actually a real comet um, that is visible every, like, 50 or 70 years or something. But when I read it, I, I wondered if it had any connection to another real comet called the hale comet. Anyone remember the hale comet and what it was notorious for? It was connected to that weird 1990s, like, windsuit wearing colt Heaven's Gate. And, I thought we were feeding our kids Heaven's Gate for a minute. But I wanna assuage you parents, that is not the case. This is a different comment altogether. Um, obviously, we don't have time to work through all five days, but, but I do want to park on the last day of BBS and walk through the Bible verse for that day and the Bible story that I think really illustrates the Bible verse well. Every day, the kids had a Bible verse that they sort of themed the, the lessons after, and there was a particular Bible story that they learned as well, and, I, and they, they connect in some way. And, and so I want us to just spend our time this morning on the verse and on the story, because I, I think it works really great for particularly our context here at City on a Hill. So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be reading verses 14 through 16, which uh, these verses should be pretty familiar to you if you've been around for, for any amount of time at City on a Hill. These are the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 14. This is what he says. You are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill is not easily hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, there is an underlying assumption in this passage that you need to know in order to really get at what Jesus is talking about here. It may or may not be readily apparent to some of you. And so I want to point it out so that we can, we can track with Jesus' words and then, and then apply it to the story that we're going to read here in a moment. The underlying assumption is that if your life has been changed by Jesus that means your works will have been changed as well. Jesus is saying that the choices that you make as a Christian, the the actions that you take as a Christian should be like a light that expels darkness to those who are around you. Your life should be in some way like a city in the ancient world set upon a hill that everyone sees because it's elevated, it's visible to travelers as they pass by. In other words, the Christian faith is not simply a prayer that you pray. It's not fire insurance from hell where you pray this prayer and and do this little thing and then you kind of go along with your daily life as if nothing has changed prior to coming to faith. Major changes happen on a spiritual level when you place your faith in Jesus and are born again. For one, you die. I mean, this is the Bible's language. You die and you're reborn. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a little bit better creation? No, he's a new creation. He's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. You are no longer the old you the moment you are born again. You die. That you is gone. It is it is dead. It's in fact it's crucified. That's the language that Paul uses, Galatians 2:20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, the assumption underlying Jesus' words is that if you are a Christian, you are not the same person anymore. You're not the same person. You've died, you've been born again, you're a new creation and because of that, everything should look different. The choices you make, the things you do, the priorities that you hold, the pattern of your life, it should be vastly different. And not just different, Understand that, not just different, but visible, public, noticeable. Your good works should be as visible as a city set upon a hill that passers-by see when they're on their day-to-day travels. And they should not only see your works, but your works should inspire a great amount of reverence for God and and ultimately praise for him. Look at verse 16 again. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and what? High-five you? No, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We have so, I think, in in evangelicalism in particular, and especially, I think, in more more reformed flavors of evangelicalism, we have misunderstood works. We've misunderstood works. We often rail against works because we believe that we've been saved by grace through faith and not works. That's true, isn't it? Amen? Amen. That's what the Bible teaches, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, Paul says. It is the gift of God, not a result of what? Works, so that no one may boast. We believe this is true. Salvation is by grace through faith, not based on anything you do. But here's what happens. We read and believe Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and here's the switch that takes place. We go, see, I'm, I'm believed by grace through faith, so works have no place in my life. Works are useless. That's the Old Testament. We don't need those anymore. That's gone. That's not what Jesus says here in Matthew 5. Works are important. Now, they don't save you. They have no part in saving you. But they are important as a witness to Christ. Your salvation, in other words, should produce works. That's, that's really the underlying message of the New Testament. James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, James says, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? This is a rhetorical question. It's not good. He goes on in verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead faith. It's not real. So so salvation, understand this, is a gift of God. We we cannot, you cannot work your way into heaven. You cannot work your way out of heaven. I mean, that's the gospel, that's great news. There's the, the work of God in Christ for your life is the work of salvation. You have no part in it whatsoever. But consequently, if the gift of salvation has come to you, it should result in something visibly different that points people to God, to give Him glory, not yourself. If your good works are leading people to give you praise, you're doing it wrong. It should produce something that makes people look at your life and give glory to God. Now, with that said, Let's look at another story in the Bible that I think in some ways illustrates this working of Christ in the life of a believer to affect another believer who is in need of the light of Christ. If you have uh, your Bibles open, New Testament, go a few books to the right. We're gonna go to Acts chapter eight. Acts chapter 8. That's right after John's gospel, which is extremely unfortunate because Luke wrote it. It's kind of part two, but that's another sermon for another time. Uh, While you're turning there, we're going to be looking at verse 26. Let me give you some context while you're getting there. Uh, uh, First of all, you need to understand the thesis of the book of Acts to really understand what Acts is doing, because Acts is built around one single verse, essentially. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is the thesis of the book. At this point, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father, and he says to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This passage is... Acts 1.8 forms the structure of, of ultimately the whole book. The disciples receive the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. They go out in power as witnesses to the gospel. Persecution eventually breaks out in Jerusalem where they are, and that spreads them outward to escape persecution into Judea and Samaria. And eventually, the gospel goes out through the missionary efforts of Paul, which we're going to be talking about here in the next couple of weeks in a sermon series through the month of August. The gospel makes its way to the ends of the earth, but this point of persecution... That, that kind of begins the spread and, and sets forth Acts 1.8 into its fullness, that persecution begins in Acts chapter 8, which is our, our text for this morning. In Acts 8.1, it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Luke is literally telling you this is the next part of Acts 1.8. They're going from Jerusalem to now Judea and Samaria. Then we get to verses 4 and 5, and it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They're carrying it out. They're going as witnesses. Philip, this is verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, pause for a moment. Who is Philip? We need to answer this question. Philip was first described two chapters prior to this in Acts chapter 6 when a group of Hellenists or Gentile Christians approach the Jewish believers of that city in Jerusalem and they present to them a problem. The the issue is that the Jewish widows of that day were being well cared for by the church and, and this is a part of the New Testament calling to care for widows. The issue is that the Hellenists, the Greek widows, were not being cared for. So the Jewish widows are getting care, the Greek widows were not getting care, and and so there was some sort of discrimination or partiality that's being shown, and, and there is no partiality in the church. That's another message that reverberates through the New Testament as well. And so, and the issue, the reason why this is taking place is there's just not enough help. They don't have enough people. And so the apostles decide we need to choose men who can go about doing the ministry to the widows and to the community that we may remain in our position to continue to teach and preach and and provide spiritual formation. Acts chapter 6 verse 3, it says they choose seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom to carry out this ministry in their community. And it gives their names. There's a couple of them that are of note that I want you to notice. Uh, One is Stephen. Stephen is a really important figure in the book of Acts. Acts. He is the first recorded Christian martyr in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7. This is ultimately actually uh, what, what spreads the persecution into Jerusalem where Acts 8 begins. And then the second named mention is Philip. So, Philip is a Hellenist. He's a Greek Christian. And he begins his ministry preaching to the Samaritans. He contends with this guy named Simon the Magician. And then pick up in verse 26. This is our story for this morning. I just want to give you a little bit of context before we jump in here so that you have some, some way of sort of hanging this all together in the appropriate places. It says this in verse 26. Now, uh, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south. To the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, this is a desert place. Now, it's not explicit. It just says desert. This might be talking about Texas. I I don't know that for sure. Um, It feels like a desert place where I live. Look at verses 27 and 28. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So here's the first thing we notice in this story, is that there is a light that was needed. Light was needed in this individual's life. This character that we're introduced to says that he is a Gentile, particularly an Ethiopian. By the way, uh, if, you're, if you're not well-versed in, like, Christianese, right? Um, Gentile is just anyone who's not a Jew in the Bible, Okay. Gentile or Greek. Sometimes your your Bibles will translate it that way. And in the ancient world, if you were not Jewish, you were a Greek. So uh, it, this is just an easy way of saying not a Jewish person, either Jewish in the uh, worship of Judaism or Jewish Christian. Uh, both of those are fine, but anything outside of that, you are a Gentile. And uh, more than that, he's a eunuch, which was a very common uh, Status to have in the ancient world. And he's also a court official of a woman named Candace, who is incidentally the queen of Ethiopia. So he's a he's a royal person. He's someone of of stature. He has a little bit of notability, uh, obviously a little bit of wealth as well. Luke tells us that he was going to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, This was not an uncommon thing. Jews who were God-fearing individuals in the ancient world would sometimes travel to Jerusalem. They were not allowed or permitted to enter into all of the temple privileges because they weren't Jews, but they could attend various festivals. In fact, John chapter 12, verse 20, uh, there's talking about a festival in that particular chapter, and it says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So John is even telling you in his gospel that, that there were a mixture of both Jewish people and Greeks who were attending this Jewish festival. So this Ethiopian, he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to worship likely at a festival, and it says that he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Just a little casual reading, the major prophet Isaiah. Now, in the ancient world, it's important for you to understand this, they didn't have Bibles. So it's not like he had his Bible opened to Isaiah. Okay? The Bible hadn't been written yet in its entirety, and it, and it doesn't become bound in a what we would call a codex until uh, minimally probably the 4th century. Uh, I actually I showed a picture of this a few weeks ago when I traveled to England. When we were in London one day, we went to the British Museum. They had uh, on hand, in display, Codex Sinaiticus, which is the oldest... Uh, extant codex that we have; it dates to the the 300s B.C. Uh, and it is the entire New Testament with much of the Old Testament in Greek as well. It's a, in a remarkable, remarkable piece of history. But but keep in mind, this is 300 something years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So at this point, they don't have they don't have bound books of the Bible. What they did have, if you were lucky, and also wealthy, you could perhaps come upon owning a scroll of one individual book of the Bible. And in this instance, this Ethiopian eunuch owned a copy of Isaiah. So get this. Set this up in your mind. This is a Gentile who fears God, doesn't know Jesus, but fears God. He's traveling to Jerusalem, perhaps to celebrate and worship at a festival, he is on his way in his little chariot and he is reading the prophet Isaiah like many people in the evangelical church today, which is he didn't understand any of it, right? And uh, it is safe to say then, I think, that a light is needed in this person's life. More than that, notice a prompt was given. Verse 29, it says, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now this is a really interesting detail, theologically speaking. I want to park here for a moment. Um, It's interesting because it's—I'm not entirely sure that this was a necessary prompting. What I mean by that is, I want you to think about this for a moment. Philip is a Christian, right? He's—he's—in fact, he's not only a Christian; he's someone recognized as like a very mature uh, person of repute, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Those were the qualifications given in Acts six. He knows the Word. he's mature, he's he's ready to serve, He's, he's apparently gifted in some way to serve. He knows the Great Commission. Anyone remember the Great Commission? Jesus' words in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Philip knew this. Philip knew That the call of Christ on the the life of an individual believer was to go and make disciples of people who do not know Jesus. He didn't need to be told by the Spirit to go and share the gospel with this individual. And yet, the Spirit still prompts him to do it. I want to park here for a moment and tease this out. Because I think this is actually really important to the story. And and I, I think it is uh, more generally important for you as you think about how the light of Christ shines in your life as a witness to people around you. I want to be very clear up front that this kind of prompting from the Spirit is not, hear this, it's not hearing the audible voice of God, okay? Uh, I, get, I get very uneasy when people are like, God has been giving me this revelation, you know, lately. I'm like, uh, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like that terminology. I understand that your intentions might be be clear, but but the way we communicate these things is very important theologically speaking because this is venturing into what we would call in the theological world, special revelation. Revelation is a word. It's more than just a book of the Bible. The book of the Bible, by the way, is singular. Revelation, one revelation. Um, It's a word that simply just means a revealing. You can almost see it in the word, right? A revealing when God reveals something about himself, either generally or specifically. That's how we break revelation down. Uh, general revelation, the revealing of God in general, uh, we can find an example of this in, in Romans chapter 1, verses 19-21. through 21. Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. He's revealed it to them, right? Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. General revelation, in other words, is the evidence in creation itself that is sufficient to demonstrate the existence of God. What Paul is saying here is, you can simply observe the created world around you and know that this didn't just happen by chance. Something did this. There's something out there greater than than what we know on the physical level. Something had to have done this. Now, this is an important distinction that, that you need to catch here. General revelation does not get you saved. It doesn't take you that far. No, in other words, no one from an unreached tribe in the middle of the ocean wakes up on an island, looks out at the sunrise, and is like, I need to repent of my sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and be baptized in his name. But like, no one does that, right? General revelation, it doesn't take you that far, but what it does do is it leaves you without excuse to think that there's nothing out there at all. Everyone is without excuse, because we simply can see and perceive the world around us and know something had to have done this, that's general revelation. Special revelation is revelation, the, the revealing of something about God that does lead to salvation. So it's found in scripture. This is where we get our revelation of God. Uh, it's revealed to us through men who wrote as the Spirit spoke to them. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I want to suggest to you this morning that neither of these categories, not general revelation, not special revelation, capture what's happening here in verse 29. God is not revealing something about himself that is intrinsic to salvation or or his existence. It's just simply a prompting of the Holy Spirit to go specifically to this Ethiopian person and share the gospel. And I believe this kind of prompting still can happen. There's no indication that it stopped. I believe there will be times in your life when the Spirit will prompt you to share the hope that you have in Christ with someone specifically, and you need to be aware of it when it happens. Now, if the Spirit doesn't prompt you to share the gospel with some stranger in your life, should you still? Yes, you've been commissioned to by Christ. But there are times, I think, when the Spirit prompts you to do it for some reason that you may never be really aware of. Philip was yielded to the Spirit. He was yielded and aware of the Spirit's prompting. He went where the Spirit prompted him to go. He spoke to whom the Spirit prompted him to speak. And notice that leads us to this next point. Scripture was unfolded as a result of this. Philip wasted no time at all. Look at verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? I mean, just... Boom, right? Goes right to the, like doesn't even introduce himself. (laughs) Doesn't even ask him like, hey, how are you? Doesn't even get into the conversation. This is the worst evangelism tactics uh, that you can imagine. Just like, hey, uh, do you understand that Bible? Let me unpack it for you, right? And look at what follows, verses 31 through 35. He said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep... He was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? Now, I gave you the, the, I was going to ask you the question. I forgot I gave it to you on the screen. This is particularly from Isaiah 53 which is our, usually we read this like during Good Friday, uh, during Passovers. Uh, This is one of the Passover passages. It talks about the lamb being crushed for the iniquity and and God was pleased to to crush him. Uh, It's a really, really magnificent passage. And it's very clearly talking about Jesus. We know that because Philip's about to tell us that. Verse 34, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this is about? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. I wonder how many of you would be able to lead someone to faith in Jesus Christ through the book of Isaiah. You see, Philip is yielded to the Spirit. He's obedient to the Spirit's leading, but he's also prepared, isn't he? He's also prepared. He could unfold the scripture because he knew it. This is why knowing the Bible matters. You can be as yielded to the Spirit as possible. And when the Spirit sends you on some prompting to talk to somebody, or when you are just more generally fulfilling the Great Commission to, to make disciples, you're going to have very little chance at doing that if you don't know the Bible to begin with. This is why we offer Bible studies. Do you know that many churches today, many contemporary churches, as their uh, new buildings are sprouting up, you'll notice that they don't have any any Bible study rooms in them. A lot of churches are getting away from Sunday school. I will never get us away from Sunday school. Amen. Amen. Now we're not gonna call it Sunday school anymore because we don't wanna sound like we're from the 1970s, but, we're, but we are still doing Sunday school. It's just called Life Bible Study now. This is why it matters so much to me. This is why I write the material. I write the lessons every week. I spend a couple of hours every week writing these lessons because it matters. It's not just like a task that I gotta check off my list and go, go about my business. It's why I do it, because I believe formation happens through the text, through the scripture. When you, when you yield yourself to God's word, it's living and active. It's God-breathed, Theanustas, It will change you. It will pierce you. It will form you. It's sufficient for all good things in your life. It's why it matters. The Bible matters so much. Being a shining light for Jesus is not just being loud and joyful for Jesus. You need to understand that. Those are fine things. We should be loud and joyful for Jesus. But shining Jesus' light means not only being obedient to the direction of God in where you go, but also in what you know. It makes no difference if you're willing to go to speak to people about Christ when the Spirit prompts you if you can't unfold the Scripture when you get there. Otherwise, you're just telling them your opinion or some story about something that is not going to save them. The gospel saves them. you got to know the scripture. you got to be able to unfold the scripture if you're going to shine your light that leads them to give glory to God in heaven. Notice what follows. A life was changed. Verse 36. It doesn't explicitly tell us that the Ethiopian eunuch was saved or was born again, but it implies it. Because his next thing that he desires to do is Baptism. He sees water. In verse 36, he says, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip's like, well, we don't have a gathering of people around here and it's not Sunday morning, so um, no, that's not what happens, is it? Now understand, this Ethiopian eunuch is not a part of any church. And so this is about to be a testimonial moment for him as he goes back to Ethiopia to essentially bring the gospel with him. I would argue that at this moment when he's baptized, he's a member of the church that Philip belongs to in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria because he's been baptized under the authority of someone from that church body. And when he gets to Ethiopia and the gospel is established there, he'll join that church as well. And they'll have to email and write a letter that says, I'm just kidding, they're not gonna do that. But this goes back to the beginning of what we just talked about in Matthew five, doesn't it? When God changes your life, When you believe the gospel, when you meet Jesus and are born again, he changes your desires as well. Immediately, the eunuch is like, I have to be baptized now. His desire to obey Christ is evident in his life. The the, the eunuch doesn't get baptized in order to earn God's favor. He is baptized in response to God's favor. And so again, I'm gonna ask you a question that I want you to reflect on this morning as we uh, go about the morning. If you are a believer in Christ and you have never been baptized, what prevents you from being baptized? What's preventing you from this? Is it fear? I don't want to be in front of a bunch of people. You're in front of a bunch of people now. If you're in the room, the only difference is you're in water in a baptism. Is it it embarrassment? It's been so long since I've been you know, a Christian and I've never been baptized, I'm embarrassed. Surely you've done more embarrassing things than that. <laughs> Is it shame over sin that you committed? Maybe last night, maybe this morning. You know, I'm just not ready to be baptized because I still sin. I got a news flash for you. You're gonna keep sinning. You need Jesus' grace today and tomorrow and every day after, Amen. Baptism is not about like, well, now I'm ready. You know when you're ready? When you believe the gospel. When you're ready to be obedient to Jesus' commandment to be baptized. That's when you're ready. Are you ready to be obedient to Jesus' command? Then come talk to me after church and let's get you baptized. I'm not going to throw you in there today. I'm going to give you at least one week to call family because we want to make an affair of it. I want to get them here to see it because part of, I do believe, part of baptism in the normative practice is a public, there is a public aspect to it. And overwhelmingly, that is the pattern of the New Testament. We don't want to build a theology of baptism off of just this one passage. But the urgency of the Ethiopian is, I think, very valid. What's preventing you from this? Notice the progression in the story. Light was needed. A non believer has the scroll of Isaiah. He has no idea how to read or understand it. He needed the light of Christ. So a prompt is given. The Spirit prompts Philip to go to him. Philip goes, he unfolds the scripture. He understands uh, Isaiah 53 and and, and shares Jesus with this Ethiopian eunuch, and a life has changed as a result of it. The Ethiopian believes, he's baptized, he's sent on his way, presumably to Ethiopia, uh, where we know that eventually Christianity is established. And notice, though, last in this passage, the cycle continues. Look at verses 39 and 40, and When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Just pause there for a minute. I I always like to imagine the little cloud from Mario that, like, swoops down and grabs Mario and just into another land. This had to have been one of the most strange moments of this Ethiopian's life. Like, this is a question your sanity moment, right? Right. Like, he is, he is reading Isaiah, his mind is blown, he's just believed the gospel, he's been born again, he's like, I'm ready to be baptized. He comes up out of the water and he's alone. Like, you would have to think that this was a very puzzling moment for him, but look at verse 40, Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Philip just kept going. Spirit prompted him, took him somewhere else. We don't know how, some weird way, he's transported to Azotus. And he's like, all right, well, I'm here. Guess I'm gonna do it again. And he preaches the gospel. He unfolds the scripture. And presumably lives are changed and it just continues. And this is the cycle of discipleship throughout the entirety of the book of Acts. Light is needed, spirit prompts, scripture unfolded, lives change, light needed, spirit's prompt, right? It just keeps on and on. This is the pattern of the Christian life. The question is, is it the pattern of your life? Is it the pattern of your life? And if not, why not? Maybe for some of you, you, you just need to be more aware of the Spirit's prompting and more committed to the Great Commission. Just be more aware of the people around you and use those opportunities to share the gospel. Maybe for some of you, you need to know the scripture better so that you can unfold it better. And that means going and getting into a live Bible study. Our life Bible studies are growing immensely right now. Go join one. They're great. They're full of excitement. I'm a little impartial because I, uh, right, have a, a, a part in it, but I, I'm telling you, they're it's, it, they're great groups of people studying God's word. Maybe one of the reasons why this isn't the cycle of your life is because you're not Philip in the story. Maybe you're the Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch. And I'm unfolding scripture for you right now today. And maybe you need to give your life to Christ right now. Maybe it's your life that needs to be changed right now. Maybe you haven't been baptized because you never believed. And so I'm going to ask you, we're going to pray here. And I'm going to ask you, if that's, if that's where you are this morning, if you've never submitted your life to Jesus, that today would be the day that you would do that. No excuses. You're not, you're not promised tomorrow. What prevents you today from believing? What prevents you today from deciding, I, I need to be baptized? If that's where the Lord leads you this morning, then after we pray and we're done here, I would love for you to come and find me or someone on the staff here so that we can talk to you about that and we can, we can help walk you to whatever that next step is for you. This is the pattern of discipleship in the life of every Christian. The question is not whether it applies to you. The question is where are you in it? And what maybe do you need to do to better be in the pattern on a day-to-day basis? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We believe that it's authoritative, that it's the foundation upon which we stand. And that God, when we believe it, we believe the gospel through your work and not our own, we are changed in some incredible way. We die, we're reborn, and with this new life comes new desires, new desires to be yielded to you, to your spirit, to know your word, and to share those things with the people that you put in our lives. So I pray this morning, God, for your people here, they would be stronger witnesses, that they'd be more committed, that they would be reminded this morning of this text and, and ways that they need to be refined, whether that be through just being more aware of your prompting or more aware of what your word says. And, and I pray specifically, God, those, for those this morning who maybe are not like Philip, but are more like the Ethiopian and, and need to be born again this morning, that you, would, that you would work in their lives this morning, that we'd be able to celebrate with them today as they commit their lives to Jesus, are born again, the old way is gone, the, the, the shame and the, the guilt, feelings of inadequacy that come along with all the sin that they know that they're guilty of, God, would be forgiven and that they would rest in the freedom that we have in Christ. And the family of God that you've, you've put together here in this little part of East Fort Worth, to continue on a day-to-day basis growing into the conformity of the image of your son. We thank you for the workers this week that labored to share this hope, this light with our children. Thank you that we're a church that celebrates who you are, that takes what we do very seriously, we just don't take ourselves too seriously. Have fun doing it. Pray that these investments made into these lives would be well made, kept for eternity. Thank you for Emma and for the the children's ministry leaders and uh, for all the parents who are committed as well in serving. Would you bless them? Would you bless us? Would you move in our lives in a way that only you're capable? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you. We will see you next week.